Chapter 6 Multitudes Do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am large, I contain multitudes. Walt Whitman, Song of Myself, 51 Tell me, where is it exactly that I begin and end? With this thin membrane that I call skin? But what of the air that I breathe in and out? What of this bread, so recently flour and yeast, and not so very long before that, spores in a packet, and stalks of wheat swaying in the field? Tomorrow this bread and I will be indistinguishable. What of the bacteria, friend and foe, that call my body home, that outnumber the cells that I call my own? Where do they begin and end? And what of the thoughts, these very thoughts, that enter stage right and exit stage left without any discernible director? Are they me? Are they mine? And who gives them their stage directions? What of this joy? What of this delight? What of this shame and this melancholy? Are they citizens of my autonomous republic? Are they strangers that simply slip across the border as they please? And tell me, when is it exactly that I began? Did I begin at 8 o'clock in the morning on one November day? Or nine months before that? And what of that sperm and what of that egg? What of the DNA passed like whale song across the ages, both the expression and record of life's grand symphony? And when is it that I will end? When this heart quits its rhythm? Or when the electrical impulses in this brain cease firing? What of my daughters, who will sing the whale song that flowed through me and through their mother with their own unique voice, their own singular inflection? Will I end when they end? Or with their children's children's children? What of the loves, the friendships, the missteps, the deep talks, the small talk the gardens planted, the fuel consumed, the words on the page, anything and everything I have said or done that in one way or another, for better or for worse, rippled out into the world. These are not riddles, they're not rhetorical questions. They're reminders, reminders to that persistent part of myself, the only part of myself that can conceive of words like my and self that we are but arbitrarily defined, and that we tend to define ourselves in the smallest and most limited way. Perhaps the simplest explanation of our current time of tumult is that collectively we have so thoroughly bought into the idea of our small and limited nature. And we have bought into this notion because we have allowed the faculty that enables us to be large, expansive, and encompassing to wither on the vine, the faculty of imagination. Our small and limited selves equate imagination with fantasy, with something that is not real, even though we constantly use our imaginations to comprehend phenomena that are collectively accepted as real, yet lie beyond the reach of direct sensorial perception. To have even the most tenuous grasp of the notion of gravity, electricity, or photosynthesis, for example, requires the muscle of imagination. 
For millennia, the human project has seemingly been to expand what we possess, what we claim to own and hold dominion over, while simultaneously shrinking who we imagine ourselves to be. Could it be that this building fever of possessiveness is an inversely proportional attempt to compensate for what we have lost as the boundaries of self-definition have diminished to the gray matter between our temples? Our times ask for a complete reversal in self-definition, a stretching of our understanding of who we are in both space and time. Thus redefined, what need do we have to possess that which we already are? Our much-needed expansion is a two-part process. First, the arbitrariness of the conventional boundaries of the self must be considered again and again, their insubstantiality becoming increasingly and glaringly obvious. The Buddhists call this non-self. We might think of this as the dissolving, the wearing away of the hard seed coat that contains within it the impulse that yearns to grow into an oak, an alder, or a dandelion. Yet how vulnerable this is, the seed, which had so clearly defined itself as seed, safe and secure within its armor, is now something ambiguous, something without easily discerned boundaries. What the germinating seed does next is instructive. It expands outward, differentiates, grows into itself by taking in its surroundings, by absorbing water and minerals and nutrients from the soil and making sense of these, creating form and order. It steps out of its phase of relative stasis, of splendid isolation, and into a whole new dynamic reality in which it must actively take the world into itself. Some seeds need water to be coaxed forth from their protective shells, others fire. Some need to pass through the grinding, acidic underworld of an animal's digestive tract. There are many ways to consider the multivalent crises that humanity is facing, one of which is the possibility that we too are being coaxed out of the limiting rigidity of our small selves through trial and tribulation. The germinating plant sends roots and shoots to expand into what it must become. Psychologically, we send out imaginative feelers into the world, not so much to bring something foreign in, but through this contact to remember what is already inside of us, the innumerable latent melodies encoded in our nearly four billion year old whale song, the archetypal patterns of existence that simmer like the seeds of the old woman of the world's cauldron. We are hardwired for this imaginative exercise. Our mirror neurons make little distinction between the movements and gestures we observe in other beings and our own. If we extend the practice into our physical bodies, as traditional hunters did when they danced as buffalo or deer, we become even more aware of the resonance and interconnection between inner and outer. We remember, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, that we enter our. Our times call for the stretching and flexing of imaginative muscle. It is our imaginations that connect us with the part of ourselves that is face down on the asphalt, pleading for breath, as well as the part of ourselves 
that pitilessly drives the knee down on the neck of the perceived other. When we become multitudes, we contradict ourselves. We recognize that the very depths and heights of human nature are part of everyone's inner geography. And to quote Alexander Solzhenitsyn, that the line that divides good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The 18th and 19th century polymath Goethe, who had one of the most remarkable imaginations in all of the Western tradition, put it this way, there is no crime of which I do not deem myself capable. To recognize the shadow as Goethe did is not to excuse it or explain it away. It is to become conscious of the fact that it too is part of our inner landscape. Perhaps most remarkably, the human imagination is bound neither by space or time. The Iroquois made significant decisions only after stretching their imaginations seven generations into the future. Our imaginatively underdeveloped modern consciousness has difficulty seeing beyond the next election cycle or fiscal quarter. Yet something remarkable occurs when we remember that we enter our that we are large and contain multitudes. The line that we have so firmly drawn between human beings and the rest of creation begins to fade. We are, in a sense, welcomed back into the fold. While composing these lines, I walk down the trail in the woods near the swamp where the beaver lodge is. Hearing a rustling in the understory, I stopped. Out from the salal crept a furtive black mink he came closer and closer until he calmly sauntered over my foot before disappearing again into the wood. This brief but meaningful encounter brought to mind St. Francis, whose potent imagination allowed him to cross our culturally created boundaries and commune with the birds and the beasts. Returning to our foray into quantum physics from chapter 4, when we think of an electron as a wave, it behaves as a wave. When we think of an electron as a particle, it behaves as a particle. Similarly, when we perceive nature as something outside of ourselves, as other, it confirms our stance and behaves as other. Yet when we see ourselves as utterly interwoven into the fabric of the cosmos, we might more often find ourselves talking with sparrows while mink clamber over our feet. Carl Jung once said, we don't so much solve our problems as we outgrow them. We add capacities and experiences that eventually make us bigger than the problems. The problems we currently face are far too numerous and far too large for us to remain so small in our consciousness. The upheavals of our times are wearing down the seed coat of the separate, self-contained psyche. Let us send forth the roots and shoots of imagination and remember just how large the world intends for us to be.